So our next speaker is well known to you. He is our co-chair for the day, Dr. Lennox. He's at uh, Emory University Grady Hospital. He's the associate dean for clinical research. And as we've all learned over the years, there's only a one letter difference between being dean and being dead. So I'm glad, <laughs> I'm very glad that he's only an associate dean. So he's gonna give us an update on Croy. Why, thanks, I think. <laughs> so um, I'm going to launch right in. I'm going to be talking today about new drugs, new strategies, touch a little bit on uh, end organ disease, and then close out with a few slides about opportunistic infections, since we still see them here in the south. OK, and you can see my learning objectives, which I just went into. So. Luckily, there are not a lot of people out there that have highly resistant HIV, but for those who do, it's really handy to have some new drugs being developed. And capsid inhibitors are something that's been worked on now for decades. And each time a company starts, they seem to be getting a little bit closer. So this is a next generation capsid inhibitor. The data that was presented at Retrovirus indicate that it's highly active at really low concentrations. Uh, since it acts against capsid, which is highly conserved and doesn't mutate as much, it's active against many kinds of clades and strains. Resistance can develop, but because of that high conservation of capsid, resistant viruses tend to assemble poorly and therefore be less fit. And the companies working on developing this, they've shown that in addition to inhibiting capsid assembly, it might also have a step of RT inhibition or maybe entry into the nucleus. So it might have a secondary off-target effect. So there may be progress in the capsid inhibitor field. Of course, I've said that before, and I obviously lied to you. So next is a new integrase inhibitor. We've got several integrase inhibitors, great class of drugs. This is the latest edition. It's called Bictegravir. It's got a very long half-life that makes it compatible with daily dosing. It's metabolized by cytochrome P450 and UGTA1, but it's perfectly fine if you use it in low creatinine clearance states because of this. There's not a lot of renal excretion or renal metabolism. Uh, preliminary data indicates that like the other integrase inhibitors, you probably shouldn't be taking it with divalent cations like calcium and magnesium. And its resistance profile appears to be similar to dolutegravir based on the initial data. So a lot of this sounds very similar to dolutegravir. And the company that's developing it is going to co-formulate it with uh, tenofovir alafinamide and emtricitabine. At least that's one of the things they're planning. So this is one of the larger studies that was uh, presented about integrase inhibitors at retrovirus. It was still relatively small, about 100 patients, two to one randomization, treatment naive, randomized to get Bictegravir versus uh, Dolutegravir. So it was a direct head-to-head -head comparison to Dolutegravir. And you can see the characteristics of the sample size. As many of these initial studies are now Primarily men, since in many areas of the country, that's the predominance of the urban epidemic. Um, about half white, it used to be 90% white 20 years ago, so it's again showing the progression and the change in the epidemic. And the baseline uh, HIV RNA and CD4 counts are higher than we've seen in treatment-naive studies that we would do 10 years ago. So people are getting diagnosed earlier, going on treatment earlier. 
You can see the outcomes at weeks 24 and 48. And what you can see is comparing Bictegravir with uh, FTC and tenofovir alafenamide versus dolutegravir in that same two nucleoside combination is that virologic success, virologic failure, you know, missing data, everything looked pretty much equivalent between these two drug combinations. And there was very, very, very low incidence of resistance. In fact, this is a relatively short study. And as you would expect with dolutegravir-containing regimens, and hopefully now with bictegravir-containing regimens, there was no resistance. The adverse event side effect and changes in creatinine clearance were essentially the same between the two regimens. So I think with Bictegravir, it looks like we are going to potentially have another long-acting, high barrier to resistance, well-tolerated integrase uh, entering the market. Now what about non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors? You know, we're all using integrase inhibitors, protease inhibitors. Non-nucleoside use has dropped off primarily because of the barrier to resistance and adverse effects. Now, companies are still trying to develop non-nucleoside uh, reverse transcriptase inhibitors. And Duravarine, there was interesting data presented at the retrovirus meeting. This, again, is a long-acting, once-daily non-nucleoside RTI. And it looks like it's active against the most common resistance mutations. So if somebody took a Favarins or Nevarapine, and you knew they had a K103N with the Favarins or a Y181C with Nevarapine, at least in vitro, this drug has significant activity. So like a Traverine, for instance, as far as its activity. Um, it's metabolized by cytochrome P450, 3A4, similar to other non-nucleosides. There is some boosting effect of ritonavir that does show you that, you know, you could potentially drive up levels, not that we're necessarily going to do that. So a phase two study last year with Duravarine did a head-to-head -head comparison with the Favarins and showed similar antiviral activity and less adverse effects. So this year they presented the data from a phase three study directly comparing Duravarine versus Darunavir-Ritonavir in combination with two nucleosides. And, you know, these were the two nucleosides. You know, they're commonly used nucleoside combinations. So this is a Duravarine versus boosted protease inhibitor in treatment-naive people. So as you can see, the virologic success, whether or not your baseline viral load was greater than 100,000, and whether or not your T-cell count was low, that Duravarine performed just as well as boosted Darunavir in these treatment-naive patients. Drug-related adverse effect frequencies were similar, although they varied a little bit between the two drugs with more diarrhea and GI intolerance in the Duravarine arm, slightly more um, soft neurologic side effects or psychiatric side effects, I should say, in the Duravarine arm. Now, in the Duravarine arm, two patients did develop NNRTI resistance, and there was no darunavir resistance in the treatment-naive darunavir arm. So it appears that even though it's active against resistance mutants generated by the other non-nukes, it itself may not have as high of a resistance barrier as a boosted PI, and potentially by inference to some of our more modern in, uh, integrase inhibitors. But again, it looks like it's in the studies that have been done, better tolerated than a Favarin's. 
And there may be patients where this is a reasonable option, or if the company were introduced it at a, you know, $5 a month, that it might dominate the market. <laughs> Another investigational NNRTI, I really have a hard time pronouncing this, Elsie. So Elsie, low dose, 20 milligrams. So it's very, very, you know, got great pharmacokinetics. It can be a very small pill. They compared it directly to efavirenz, both with tenofovir and FTC. And what you can see in 120 patients that LC versus efavirenz, the activity virologically was the same. Drug-related adverse effects, it was much better tolerated than efavirenz. Um, abnormal dreams with LC were half the abnormal dreams prevalence with efavirenz. So, this is another NNRTI that it might be a better tolerated, long, you know, equally long acting, and it may give us another option as far as classes of drugs to use in treatment naive patients. So stay tuned to see the LC versus Dory combination, I mean, a comparison. Now, getting back to our patients with treatment-resistant HIV, there really weren't a lot of drugs that have progressed into clinical trials. You know, there are companies that have drugs that they're developing for people with resistance. Um, Ibilizumab was presented last year at the retrovirus conference. This is an IgG antibody that blocks the CD4 to GP120 binding. And when it does this, it inhibits HIV from entering the cell through the primary receptor. And they presented preliminary data last year that made it look like this had significant antiviral activity. So this is follow-on data for people who have received extended courses of ibilizumab. And the way they give it is after an initial loading dose of a few doses close together, then you come in for an infusion every two weeks. So a very attractive pharmacokinetics because it's an antibody. Antibodies tend to hang around. <coughs> And I think what you can see is that if you look at the percent of patients who had less than 200 copies per mil in the dark green or less than 50 copies per mil in the light green, then you can see that um, despite your baseline CD4 count, that similar proportions of people were maintaining viral suppression on ibilizumab. And this drug has been made available although somewhat difficult through an expanded access pro protocol, and it's moving forward, uh, hopefully, into development if the company thinks that they can do it profitably. <coughs> Excuse me. So on to simplification or medication reduction strategies, or in the colloquium, SWITCH. So SWITCH studies. So here's a 38-year-old male who's on Tenofovir FTC and dolutegravir for five years, so he is an early adopter. His HIV RNA is consistently below 50. Baseline genotype was perfect. He's now uh, got a decreasing estimated GFR, glycosuria, and phosphatoria. So which would you choose? Um, you can see the options. Replace TDF with TAF. Change to a Bacavir 3TC. He's perfectly fine, so go on Daltegravir monotherapy or put him on a dual treatment. Go ahead and vote. Uh, 
And A is one, B is two, etc. Party people! Tag team music in full effect. That's me, DC, That is the number two hit song from 1993. <laughs> Can anybody identify it? I can't hear what people are saying. I believe that was um, Wump There It Is from Tag Team. Was that which one it was? I, I don't know the intro. I have to wait for the chorus. Okay, so we'll move on. So the majority of people said they would replace TDF with TAF, and some say that they would change to a Bacavir 3TC. Nobody's biting on the Dolutegavir monotherapy or going with Dolutegavir and 3TC. Okay, good. So there actually was some interesting data looking at dolutegavir as maintenance monotherapy, two separate studies. Uh, for those who weren't paying attention, I had some air quotes there. And one study was looking at people who decided to go to dolutegavir monotherapy, and the second one was um, a cohort of people who were switched to dolutegavir monotherapy. And what was shown is that it did work in some people, but in the people it didn't work in, you got dolutegavir resistance at an increased frequency. So it seems like a no-brainer, but until somebody actually does it and demonstrates that it's a no-brainer, I guess it isn't a no-brainer. So don't use dolutegavir monotherapy. Now what about dolutegavir plus 3TC? You know, we have other two-drug maintenance therapy regimens that have been used. You know, there was data on Calitrin 3TC, there's some data on other two drug maintenance therapies. And this one, Dolutegavir 3TC, they carefully selected people who had no resistance, who were doing well, um, had been on treatment for a long time, and they changed to Dolutegavir plus 3TC. And what you can see is that over a year of follow-up, only a few patients failed virologically, and nobody really failed with resistance. So this level of failure is what you would expect pretty much on any continuation trial. So 104 people, and basically the vast majority of them, 101 of them, after a year on dolutegavir 3TC, didn't fail that two-drug maintenance. So I don't know that I would do this with everybody, but if you had a drug that was causing toxicity and you had dolutegavir and another very active drug and no resistance, this at least is an option to consider uh, if you don't want to you know, change your nucleus or switch to starting another nucleoside. Now last year we talked about another two drug therapy, cabotegravir plus rilpivirine, you know, an integrase inhibitor plus a long-acting NNRTI, and these are available and being tested as intramuscular formulations, although you also have oral formulations. This was the data from Latte showing that, yes, if people are doing great after being on that two drug regimen for a few years, Another year later, they're still doing great. So it does have durability, again, supporting two-drug maintenance. And then the largest um, study that was reported was what was called the SWORD study, looking at dolutegavir plus rilpivirine. They took people, continued them on their three-drug regimen, or switched them to dolutegavir plus rilpivirine, and this was a large study, 500 patients per arm. They weren't fooling around with this study. And these, I'm not going to go through all the baseline demographics. You can look at the slides later, but it was well randomized, well done. 
you know, good proportion of females, 23%. And what you can see, the outcomes at 48 weeks, switching to dolutegravir plus rolpivirine versus continuing had the same efficacy. Very little breakthrough with resistance, very few drug-related adverse effects, and there was essentially no difference in lipids. So looks like this is actually a feasible strategy for people to switch them to dolutegravir rolpivirine and if they, if they do prove that the in, injectables work, then this might be a good maintenance strategy for some patients. What about end organ disease? So second case, 42-year-old newly diagnosed female, HLA B57 negative, high viral load, low CD4 count, creatinine clearance is iffy, 60 milliliters per minute. She's also obese, poorly controlled diabetic, and hypertensive. Which would you choose? And you can see I've got, you know, combination regimens, either elvitegavir, dolutegavir, or a couple of two-pill regimens, you know, one regimen that's twice daily. So just go ahead and look at these and make your choices. Okay, great. That was another top 10 hit from 1993 for those of you who weren't alive then. Um, move, I'm just going to go on. The Elvitegavir TAP FTC seems to be the most popular, although, you know, Dolutegavir, Bacavir 3TC is catching up. And the other two options, people were not that interested in. Okay, so this begs the question like, here's a lady that has tons of cardiac risk, right? She's diabetic, obese, hypertensive, you know, should you consider cardiac risk when you select a regimen? And we're all familiar with the DAD data that showed a Bacavir and then Kaletra and then possibly other boosted, boosted protease inhibitors might increase your cardiac risk. Well, the DAD investigators at CROI presented data on darunavir and atazanavir, and they looked at 35,000 patients and they analyzed their likelihood of developing cardiovascular disease similar to what they had done with other regimens. And what they showed is that if you were getting darunavir, there was a 59% increased risk of cardiovascular disease compared to, you know, if you were on other regimens. And they did not see that increase with boosted atazanavir. And this just shows it to you in another way, doing a multivariate adjustment and still adjusting for all of the risk factors it appeared that darunavir-ritonavir had a much greater cardiac risk than atazanavir. And there's reasons to believe that atazanavir might not have as much cardiovascular risk. But then other investigators from the same cohort and others then said, well, how much of the attributable risk should we give to antiretrovirals? And these people did a really nice study in the Netherlands looking at 9,000 people and adjusting for all the cardiac risk that the patients had and then looking at models. And what they showed, and this was re confirmed in the North American cohort, there is some potential benefit about prescribing the ART with the lowest risk, but it's dwarfed by getting people to stop smoking 
diet and exercise, and to take their antihypertensive medications. So if you have 10 minutes and you want to talk about the risk of abacavir, or you want to counsel somebody on stopping smoking and you know, getting out of their, their uh, house and stopping watching TV, it would be much better to use your 10 minutes promoting health than going about on about a much smaller risk of the antiretrovirals. And I love that study because it reinforces my own bias. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, what about bone disease? You know, it seems like some of the newer non-nucleosides will be associated with less bone disease. In the SWORD study, remember they stopped the nucleosides and put people on dolutegravir ropivirine. And this sort of shows again that the bone disease may not be totally reversible, but there is some reversibility in some patients that when they go off nucleosides, they do gain a little bit of bone density. So this study showed that when you stop the nucleosides, you gained a little bit of bone density. And there was one study looking at similar question. If you're on tenofovir and you switch to tenofovir alafenamide, is there a bone benefit? And you can see from the graphs that people that changed had a somewhat increase in bone mineral density. But one of the things I thought was most useful, they actually had a nice formula for fractional excretion of phosphorus. Very simple formula. It looks complicated, but if you look at your slide, but this was highly predictive of patients who had the most bone benefit. So it makes sense. If you're losing a lot of phosphorus, then you're having the effects of tenofovir on your kidneys it would make sense that that person might be the one who would benefit from switching, whereas somebody else who isn't losing phosphorus might not benefit at all. Now, to close out my section, I wanted to talk about some OIs. Now, we, we don't see a lot of resistant TB here in the United States, knock on plastic, but this is a big problem worldwide, and we don't have a lot of good treatments. A nice cohort study was presented looking at two new drugs, protominid and bedaquiline, in combination with linazolid and best other available treatments in the other arms. But what they showed is that with this combination of innovative, newer medications, that they could cure most of the patient, patients with extensive drug-resistant TB that they treated. And this shows that it can be cured if you have the enough new medications. So it's not too surprising, but up to now it's been a really dismal outlook for people with extensively drug-resistant TB, and hopefully we're seeing a little bit of sun peeking up over the horizon. Now what about iris? You know, we do still see people with opportunistic infections coming in with iris when we start them on treatment, and there's been studies in TB looking at treating iris, well, what about putting people on prednisone before you even start their antiretroviral? You've got somebody with bad TB. It might worsen if you treat them with antiretroviral therapy. Let, let's start them on prednisone. So really nice study. They took people with TB who were starting on antiretroviral treatment, and they randomized them to 40 milligrams a day of prednisone for two weeks versus placebo, and then they ramped it down to 20 milligrams a day for two weeks. And as you can see, there was a statistically significantly less iris in the prednisone group, a longer days to first symptoms of iris, lower hospitalizations associated with iris, 
and fewer new AIDS-defining conditions. Okay, all beneficial effects noted in the prednisone arm. It wasn't quite as robust as the investigators were hoping for. I mean, they were really happy with the results, but they postulated that because rifampin cuts your prednisone levels in half, that 40 milligrams may not have been the optimal dose, that maybe we should give 60 milligrams or 80 milligrams for two weeks. So really nice study, but may need to be confirmed with higher dose prednisone. We might see even more benefits. So for my ID colleagues at Emory, when I come in with my multifocal uh, TB pneumonia that I don't suspect I have, put me on prednisone first. Now what about type of art? You know, because integrase inhibitors drop the viral load so quickly, are you more likely to get iris than if you're on a, another non-integrase regimen? There were two studies, you know, cohort studies, looking at the development of iris and people who were on an integrase regimen or who were started on a non-integrase regimen. And what both studies showed is that if you were started on an integrase regimen, that you are more likely to develop iris. Now, this has not been seen in the randomized trials, but the randomized trials are small. You know, iris is not that common anymore, and you would need large, huge, randomized studies. But this might give you pause if some of these newer non-nucleosides came out that you might say, well, gee, this person has really bad MAC. Maybe I'll start with that, and maybe iris would be less common. Again, these are just cohort studies, and association does not prove causation or future worth of the stock. Okay, one of my favorite diseases, we still see it here in the South, cryptococcal meningitis. Um, our standard of care has been unchanged for over a decade. You know, we switched from amphotericin plus 5-FC to liposomal amphotericin plus 5-FC. But in Africa, they don't have easy availability of 5-FC, and they use a lot of high-dose fluconazole, which is associated with slower clearance from the CSF. Um, so they said, well, if we could use ambisome, do we want to use it with the high-dose 5-FC for 14 days, or could we get away with using three doses, or could we get, just give one whopping dose on day one? with the high-dose fluconazole, and that would be enough. Really interesting study. Now, one of the key points in this study is that everybody in the study got four lumbar punctures. And we all know that lumbar puncture, even doing one more lumbar puncture, is associated with a dramatic improvement in survival with cryptococcal meningitis. So, the fact that everybody got four lumbar punctures, even though they only got one day of amphotericin, I think attests to how serious these investigators were in proving whether this regimen might work. So for those at the back of the room, I'm sure you can read these lines perfectly. But what I'm going to basically draw your attention to over here, this is single dose versus the control amphotericin, regular amphotericin for 14 days plus fluconazole. That's the control. Single dose, two doses, three doses, they were all equivalent. You know, there was no clear difference between the single dose liposomal amphotericin and the three days, I mean, three doses versus 14 days of amphotericin. So they're now planning a phase three study of high-dose fluconazole plus regular amphotericin 
versus one dose of liposomal amphotericin plus high-dose fluconazole. And it's possible that in five years, that might be the treatment of choice. You get one dose of ambosome, and you're sent home on high-dose fluconazole and brought back a few days later to get another LP, and a few days later to get another LP after that. So I'm hopeful that this might be starting to transform our treatment of cryptococcal meningitis. And that concludes my presentations on the highlights from CROI, and we'll go ahead and uh, I'll turn it over to Mike. So uh, a lot of you may have filled out, hopefully you did, that pre-test evaluation. So you'll note that there were a number of answers in Dr. Lennox's talk. I'd refer specifically to a capsid inhibitor that you may see again in your future when you get your post-test. So just kind of pointing that out. We're not giving the answers away. No, but just, yeah, it's good. Okay, so you can come to the microphone or have questions here. So Jeff, I think you did a nice job of um, sort of pointing out in that crypto study that there were lots of LPs. Um, the two points to that. Number one, do you think that means from that point forward that we're all obliged to do the same number of LPs to get the same result? Yeah, good question. Um, there's not been a really good randomized study to show that. And some of the people missed their LPs. And somebody asked them, well, did some people get two LPs? And did they do worse than people who got four LPs? This was such a small study, they couldn't draw any conclusions. I mean, I'm a big believer in LPs. And I think that in the phase three study, they may have enough patients that will actually know whether it makes a difference four versus two. And then I guess the second question is, um, Back in the day, Bob Larson at Southern California looked at trying to find a way to avoid amphotericin altogether, and he did a study of fluconazole 800 plus 5-FC, uh, and the fluconazole dose was 800 milligrams, which was pretty high, but it was pretty, lack of a better word, herlogenic, so people were throwing up a lot. And uh, 1,200 milligrams of fluconazole can induce a lot of GI stuff. So did they talk about the side effects of 1,200 milligrams of fluconazole? They didn't really because everybody in the study got 1,200 milligrams, but you are correct. The ACTG has also been doing a study of high-dose fluconazole, and the most common side effects is the emesis, you know, and they're going up to two grams a day. Yeah. So we have a few extra minutes here. I thought this might be kind of fun since it's our 25th anniversary, and um, if you let me wax historical for a second. Um, a lot of people have always wondered, how do we end up with the guidelines that we have today on cryptococcal meningitis? And the answer is it was an accident of um, uh, scientific debate. And what do I mean by that? Uh, when I was coming out of my fellowship at UAB, I was working with Bill Dismukes at, U at UAB, and he was a maven in cryptococcal meningitis. And so the HIV-type studies were handed over to me. And fluconazole had just come out, and we were trying to figure out a way to do a logistic study that would be feasible of comparing amphotericin, which was a standard of care for six weeks with 5-FC as a standard at that time, versus fluconazole. And how do you randomize people? We're going to give you this um, IV therapy for six weeks, or you might get this pill to take. 
and who's going to sign up for the uh, for the IV when the drug was on the market. So I pitched the study to the mycosis study group to look at two weeks of amphotericin followed by fluconazole versus fluconazole up front because Bill Powderly and I debated and decided that that would probably be the the maximum amount of amphotericin that people might agree to do a study. So that's what we went forward with. And uh, those of you who are in the field of ID know very well um, Jack Bennett at the NIH, who's the world's expert in all things fungal. And he's in the audience when I'm presenting this study, and he goes, now Mike, can you tell me where, I'm pretty familiar with the world's literature, where did you come up with this two weeks? Because I seem to have missed that. And I said, well, Dr. Bennett, I don't have such data. And he said, well, so you're just kind of making this up. And I felt like, I felt like Arnold in the Book of Mormon, you know, yeah. I'm making things up again. And yeah. And he said, there's no control group. And I said, yeah. But it somehow worked, and that became what we do. So I'd love to see us get rid of amphotericin. So Mike, thank you for that. You know, when I do talk about that study with the fellows, one question that always comes up from them is, how little dose of fluconazole? Why were you using such a low dose of fluconazole? Yeah, so, yeah, so history. And the other thing I learned from that, and since then, especially for the pharmacists in the audience, you know, you look at package inserts. And package inserts are basically copied and pasted from the study's inclusion-exclusion criteria. It's yeah. that simple. So if you ever wonder why a certain drug has a restriction that you can't use X, Y, or Z, a lot of it was just from the study. So those of you, especially the fellows who are here, um, when you start to go to design a study, have in the back of your mind that whatever you put down becomes the law, whether you realize it or not at the moment. So, by the way, how many, we didn't ask about the fellows, did we? Yeah, we're supposed to do that in a minute, but oh. you can do it now if you want. Okay. Um, we love it when the fellows are here from the different programs. So if you guys could, if you're here and you're in training and especially ID or whatever, just stand up for us real quick. So fellows and residents, please stand up. Yeah, they're sort of, okay. All right, let's give them a round of applause. Yeah. Glad you guys are here. I know some of you have to leave by noon or so, but thanks for being here. Hopefully this is worthwhile for you. Okay, back to the Q&A. Uh, question about Bictegravir. Can it be used in patients who are resistant to dolutegravir? Based on the little data that I've seen so far, I would not be the first one to try that. So, you know, obviously it hasn't been studied. We're going to have to see what happens when you try it in humans. What do you think, Mike? Well, the profile does show that there could be some activity even when a couple of the dolutegravir resistance mutations are there. I think just like the Viking study with dolutegravir um, showed that dolutegravir can work against elvitegravir and raltegravir resistance that had to be dosed twice a day. Uh, I think I wouldn't be ready for prime time with that just yet. The good news is there's not a whole lot of resistance to yeah. dolutegravir out there, yeah. so that's kind of... That's I kind mean, of, it, there's okay. reason to believe that it might work. Yeah. Um, is the switch from TAF to TDF question settled um, in terms of cost effectiveness and other things? So it's going to be, that's also a preview of coming attractions in the cases, but uh, thoughts about uh, that? I mean, obviously the way that TAF is, has been priced has, I think, settled a lot of that question. But the question will be, will a generic manufacturer come on the market with TDF at a price that will make the equation change? 
So in the past, generic manufacturers haven't done that. You know, they haven't priced their ARTs at one-tenth the price of the brand name because they want to make a lot of money too. So Yeah, it's, it's a very convoluted thing. Yeah. Right now, the, uh, just to be a little bit more detailed, um, right now the actual AWP pricing more or less between TAF and TDF is the same. The, what we don't know is the negotiated price between whoever the payer is and the pharma company for that particular insurance plan or government program or whatever. So you might, even though you know that TAF and TDF right now are priced the same AWP, average wholesale price, you don't have a clue of what happened in terms of the backroom negotiations or in the play Hamilton, the room where it happened. And so you don't know this. And that to me is one of the more irritating things of our healthcare system today. And I gave a rant on it actually this past Saturday in a TEDx talk, which not launched yet, but it, you might find it interesting to watch me rant if you've never seen that happen before. Um, those I mean, I, yeah. I think it's great that they developed half, and I just wish I knew how happy I was to reinforce Mike. <laughs> yeah, I just, I mean, it's not, it seems like a great deal. Yeah. So we'll see, and we're going, to, we're going to go into the cases. The other part of that question is when might you, what are the rules of switching? So let's postpone that discussion for the cases. Um, do you recommend treating elite controllers? Well, that's another case for the panel, and I'm going to skip it. Um, and advanced, what about a patient with advanced HIV AIDS uh, suspected but not diagnosed with MAC? Do you delay therapy, or do you... What do you do for that? Some it comes in, I'll, I'll be specific. Right. Fever, maybe some abdominal pain, some diarrhea, look kind of puny. Uh, their CD4 counts 14, viral loads a million. What do you right. do? You know, obviously, what we know from clinical trials is that cryptococcal meningitis may be the OI where there's the most justification for a short delay in treatment. And we know other opportunistic infections where you shouldn't delay at all and you need to start treatment immediately. So I tend to say, I tend to go based on evidence and we don't have evidence to say that you should delay treatment of people with suspected MAC. So I just recommend starting treatment and I think that's in compliance with the guidelines. But you know, if somebody has enough MAC cases, it's certainly something you could look at. What do you do, Mike? Well, yeah, so this, I think, I agree. I would treat immediately and watch for iris. The, uh, a tough question here is that I think personally, this is on a soapbox a little bit, I think the OI guidance is a little bit out of date, and although it may have changed recently to say people in that setting should get um, a macrolide, you know, azithromycin or clarithromycin as a prophylaxis. And I think it'd be a huge mistake to, to give that to them because yeah. if they have sure enough MAC, they're gonna get resistance but I'd go a step further and say, in my opinion, we, the whole business of MAC prophylaxis is anachronistic. Now that we have people on more successful antiretroviral therapy, you, you're not gonna gain much in terms of preventing something that's not there because they, their immune system recovers so well. But what do you all And do the new guidelines you? agree with you, Mike. They say that you don't really need to be as aggressive at prescribing right. MAC prophylaxis. If you think that somebody's gonna start their ART 
and you anticipate that they will take it, et cetera, the usual caveats that you don't have to start macroprophylaxis. Yeah. And, the ISUS and I blood. hate people starting azithromycin without getting a blood culture first. Yeah. Resistant MAC is a bad, bad actor. So with this guy that I just made up, um, would you have, you'd start the ARV therapy, would you just give empiric therapeutic doses like uh, azithro plus ethambutol and and see how he does? I know people who do that. I don't personally do it because there are side effects of azithromycin and ethambutol. Yeah. And so I usually start ART and wait to treat MAC when it's confirmed. Okay. Again, there's not a good randomized study. So obviously this and is a practice question. Right. You know, other people do differently. And I think that's also acceptable. Okay, with this new increased perception of cardiac risk from darunavir and versus adazanavir, um, does the darunavir risk losing its place as a uh, choice of therapy in the HHS guidelines, in your opinion? You're, you're on the guidelines I'm panel? I'm on the panel. So you probably can't I can't comment. really answer that. Um, I don't think it's enough. Uh, I think darunavir is still a good drug, and I love the way you said this in your talk that, you know, if you look at the relative risk of what darunavir might do versus the big risk of what smoking does, you know, we're like dancing on the head of a pin. There's this old, um, you can picture this like Larson-like cartoon, Gary Larson, of this ostrich with its head in the sand, you know, looking after this little bitty thing on the beach, and behind him is a nuclear explosion that he doesn't see.